I'd invite you to turn in the Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And now we come to this paragraph in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, that I approach with both gladness and joy and some level of caution and trepidation because the passage is so rich and full and soaring that it is difficult to do it justice. It is indeed, I would, I would argue and, and suggest that these 12 verses, verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, uh, this passage is one of the most theologically rich passages in the Bible and one of the best examples of praise, of what, what has come to be called a doxology, which is a, a sort of a liturgy of praise. It contains statement after statement of glorious truth and celebration of God's abundant grace to his people. Indeed, the series, I've named the series in Ephesians, Every Spiritual Blessing, and that comes right from verse 3. As Paul begins to praise God, he praises him for he has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so that language uh, is what I've titled the entire series uh, in the book of Ephesians because it really is sort of an expanding, an elaborating, a celebrating of these glorious truths, these spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, and then how to live in light of those uh, blessings. The, the density, the, how much is here packed into these verses, and, and the richness of it make it a challenging passage to preach in some ways, because the preacher has to make some decisions about where to draw boundaries around a particular message. The, the, the struggle is not so much what can I say as what must I not say because you could go on and on and on expounding the truths in these verses. And how can I do that in some small way to do a measure of justice to the weight and beauty of the text. So it's a, it's a wonderful passage of Scripture and worth exploring in its depth. So here's my approach. My approach to these 12 verses is that I'm going to give three messages. Not all at once, don't worry. Three messages over the next three Sundays uh, on these same 12 verses. Not breaking them down into a few at a time. Uh, you know, 3 through 6 and then 7 through 10, right? We're not going to break them down into chunks. We're going to look at all 12 verses from sort of three different angles. If you think of it like uh, like the, a multifaceted diamond. The diamond has contours and, and cuts the, in different directions. And as you, as you turn the diamond under the, the light, you see different aspects of its color and, and of its clarity and, and every turn and every angle reveals a new uh, a beauty uh, in, in the diamond and I think that this passage is much the same uh, way and so we'll approach it this way in three separate 
messages. So broadly, just so you have an outline of the next three weeks, today we'll really look at the benefits of salvation. That is what God has provided for us in Jesus Christ and what is the ultimate aim, what is the goal of that salvation. Next week we'll look at something like the shape of salvation and particularly focus on union with Christ, what it means that Christians are united to Jesus Christ by faith. And then the third week, we'll look at the scope of salvation, and namely seeing that God's plan uh, in Christ was not merely to redeem a people, but to redeem a creation. There is a cosmic and universal scope to the gospel that this passage expounds and, and makes plain for us. So that's what we'll do for the next three weeks. So today, we'll go through again all 12 verses, and we're looking to find what are the benefits of salvation and what is its their ultimate purpose? What is the ultimate aim of our salvation? And if I were to encapsulate this in one sentence, here's the big idea. It's this. Your salvation is not about you. It's about God. Your salvation is not about you. It's about God. Look with me, if you will, at verse 3. I'm going to read for you all 12 of these verses. And then we'll walk together through the benefits we have in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. May God bless this reading of His Word and may our time in it this morning lift our hearts in praise to this great God. Your salvation is not about you. It's about God. The banner over this passage is the glory of God's grace. 
the glory of his grace. It is stated three times as the purpose of God's saving work. Look in verse 6. He began, he's begun to expound the blessings that come to us through Christ. And he says in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In other words, he's chosen, he's predestined, he's uh, adopted us to the praise with the goal of, to the end that God's glory would be praised. And specifically in that phrase, it's not just his glory. It's the glory of his grace. The ESV has rendered that as an adjective, as his glorious grace. Um, but literally, it's the glory of grace, the glory of his grace. So the benefits of salvation, Paul tells us in verse 6, are for the purpose that the glory of God's grace would be seen. In verse 12, you can see it again about the inheritance that we have obtained in Christ. We who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of of His glory. Wait, why has He given an inheritance? So that God's glory would be praised. And He says it again in verse 14 at the end of this paragraph, speaking of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance to the praise of His glory. And indeed, the, in, in all three cases, it's attached to God's decisive work in salvation. Predestination, adoption, inheritance, and the Spirit as down payment for God's glory to the praise of His grace. And the final appearance of that phrase to the praise of His glory ends the long, complicated, grammatically uh, insane, theologically explosive sentence, thus capping the paragraph with its ultimate point. Your salvation is about God. It's about God before it's about you. The passage itself, as I, as I said at the beginning, is not merely a, a call to praise, though it is that. It is itself an example of praise. Paul is not only suggesting that we should praise God. When he begins by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's not merely saying, you ought to give blessing, that is praise to God. He is himself praising God. It's as though he's getting caught up and carried away in worship to God for his abundant grace. And, and, I, and carried away is really an appropriate phrase to describe what Paul is doing here because the passage in Greek as it was written is one giant run-on sentence. There's, I think, 202 words in this one sentence with dependent clauses and prepositional phrases flying about in every which direction. It's notoriously difficult for translators to sort of pin it down into English in, in ways that, that make clear sense to us, that, that make grammatical uh, sense. And so we owe a great debt of gratitude to the, the scholars who have labored to bring these wonderful truths into a form that we can follow and understand. So Paul is carried away and caught up in praise of God. And it carries the sense of an invitation, a call to worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gets going. Here are the things, the reasons, the benefits for which we are 
to praise God. It reminds me a lot of Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is the one that begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. And then it repeats it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. And then the psalmist starts listing benefits. He heals your diseases. He forgives your sins. He redeems your life from the pit, right? It's very similar to that in, in tone. It's, it's a call to praise and an example of praise, of praising God for the great spiritual blessings that He has given to us. So what is the content of this exuberant praise in verses 3 through 14? Namely, he tells us right at the start, every spiritual blessing. The content of the praise is the blessings that we have through Jesus Christ. To call them spiritual blessings is to say that they are things pertaining to the Holy Spirit. He's not yet speaking of the Spirit Himself explicitly until down in verse 13 and 14. But, but the benefits of salvation that the Spirit of God works in the hearts of the saints. Every spiritual blessing, everything that God in His grace imparts to believers through their union with Jesus Christ. And the blessings that God has poured out on us are comprehensive. Every spiritual blessing. Not some spiritual blessings, certain spiritual blessings, a lot of spiritual blessings. Every spiritual blessing comes to us through Jesus Christ. And we get a snapshot, if you will, in the following verses. Here are four benefits of salvation, how they're good news for you, and how they're ultimately about God. Each one of these benefits we're going to look at in that way. What does the benefit mean? Why is it good news for you? And why is it ultimately about God. Here are the four benefits in order, and then we'll take them one at a time. We're chosen, we're redeemed, we're endowed, and we're sealed. Those are the four benefits. Let's look at those one at a time. First, you have been chosen. The glory of God's grace is seen in that He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. See that in verse 4. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as, which really means in this way, right? Some translations even say for or because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God's sovereign election of sinners to adopt into his family took place before the world existed and certainly therefore before we did. His sovereign choice of you to be in his family far precedes your life, your breath, your actions. Meaning, his choice of you has nothing to do with you. It certainly has something to do with you in the sense that you are the one who receives the benefit of it. But his choice is based not on your looks, or your smarts, or even your morals. We might think, well, maybe God chose me because I'm a pretty good guy, and he knew that I'd be a pretty good guy, and he thought I'd be a good guy to have on his team. That's not the basis on which God has chosen. In fact, Paul makes that real clear in Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Speaking of God's purpose of election, he used, he illustrates God's sovereign election of sinners 
by referring to God's choice of Jacob over Esau. Back in the Old Testament, very early in the story of Israel before they were even a nation yet, it says that God, uh, Paul, Paul said there in Romans 9, 11, though they were not yet born and had, not done, and had done nothing, either good or bad, it was said to Rebecca, the younger shall serve, uh, excuse me, the older shall serve the younger, right? And so God chose Jacob to channel his blessings and promise and the gospel of the Messiah through instead of Esau, not because Jacob was a better guy, not because Jacob was stronger. It was before they had been born, before they had done anything good or bad. It was not on the, ba the basis of anything that he had done. And similarly, our election into God's family is not because of anything he saw in us or foresaw in us and decided that looks like a person I want on my team. I'll choose him. Some of you might be glad to know he didn't choose it in the same way that uh, the team captains may have chosen teams on the playground in the years growing up. That was always a highly anxious time for me. A, I was never the team captain. B, I was always one of the two or three at the very end to get the consolation pick. All right, I'll take Carlson. That's how it always was. You might be happy to know that that's not the way that God chooses his people. The reality is we're not exactly sure how he chooses his people because we're told over and over in this passage that it has to do with his purpose, the purpose of his will. And that is mysterious. That is not unfolded to us. So his election of us was before the foundation of the world, meaning had nothing to do with us. And there's a, there's a secondary purpose that Paul tells us about our election. You see there in verse 5, he predestined us. No, excuse me. It's verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is a secondary purpose of God's uh, grace in election, is that he's chosen for himself a people to, to restore and to sanctify so that we would be holy, that we would be blameless, that we would be presented to him as a, uh, as a people without blemish or spot. We find that language again in Ephesians chapter 5. And if you were to look at verse uh, at chapter 2, verse 10, you'll see much the same idea in that we've been given uh, salvation by grace. And verse 10 of chapter 2 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All of this is foreordained, foreplanned, predestined, to use the word that Paul uses next, that we might be a people that bring honor to him as a holy and spotless bride for Jesus Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The next phrase in verse 5 and then repeated down in verse 11 is that he predestined us. Look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through 
Jesus Christ. Predestination is God's foreordaining of events in the world before they come about in history. Broadly speaking, it's connected to God, the doctrine of God's providence, right? God, God sovereignly oversees the events and affairs of the world and of human beings such that his sovereign purposes will come about. And with respect to our salvation, predestination is closely tied to election. That is God's choice of a people for himself. God's choosing of his people is based on uh, his will and plan in eternity past. God chose, and then on the basis of his choice, he predestined, that is, he foreordained that we would be in his family, adopted as sons and daughters. Look at the emphasis in this passage throughout on God's sovereign will. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself according to the purpose of his will. According to what? On what basis did he choose us? His will. He wanted to do it this way, and so he did it that way. God is sovereign. He can do as he pleases. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Again, this is God's planning. This is God's foreordaining. God is working out the plan that he established from the beginning, from before the beginning. Verse 10. To unite all things in himself. Oh, I just said that. The, the, the plan for the fullness of time was the third actual reference to the sovereign will of God. And then in verse 11, again, he says, In him we've obtained an inheritance. Why? Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Who's his counselor? Himself. His own will is the counsel that he follows. He plans... He foreordains, he carries out. And in terms of our salvation, we receive the benefit of adoption, the benefit of being in his family by the simple fact that he, in love, chose us before the foundation of the world. So that's the benefit that he enumerates for us here. We have been chosen. How is it good news for you? How is it good news for you? Honestly, you might struggle with this. I remember vividly a time in my own life when I wrestled with this doctrine. And as I gradually came to see it in the scriptures and the, the arguments I had against it sort of began to, to lose their, their strength. Like I, I began to feel like I couldn't really hold water with, with the arguments that I was bringing against the doctrine of election. And so I, I began to see that I can't really muster a, a good argument against the truth, the doctrine of election. And yet there was a season for me where it was hard to regard it as good news. It felt strong. It felt difficult to swallow in some ways. If that describes you... If that describes where you are in relation to the doctrine of election, don't lose heart. Don't throw up your hands and go, this is too strange. 
this is too hard, this is too uncomfortable, I'm never going to get it, I'll just uh, move past this uh, discussion and, and not think about it. Don't, don't, don't throw your hands up. And don't settle for uh, platitudes. Well, it's all a mystery. We'll just chalk it up to mysteries. Don't know how it all works together. That's true. There's a sense in which it's mysterious. We don't, we don't totally see how all the pieces fit together and how God's sovereignty and human responsibility work side by side to bring about the, the same purposes. But we, if, we ju- if we stop too soon and chalk it up to mystery too early, we miss opportunities to, to see and to savor the goodness and the grace of God to us in the doctrine of election. So don't give up too soon. But let me suggest two ways for you that the doctrine of election is good news. Just two ways. There's other ways, but here's two of them. Number one, and most obviously, you're a child of God. You're a child of God because He chose you. He called you, selected you to be adopted into His family as His son or His daughter. So if you are in Christ today, it's because He sovereignly chose to bring you into His family. Praise God. You belong to Him forever. That's really good news. Number two, your prayers and your efforts for unbelievers to come to faith are worth it. God can really act in people's hearts to draw them to faith. And if He has chosen them, then He will surely answer your prayer. So pray confidently. Speak confidently. Proclaim the gospel confidently because we know God will save those that He has chosen from eternity past. And He will use the preaching of the gospel and our prayers for their salvation to bring it about. So there's two ways it's good news. How is it about God? Namely this. No one will stand in God's presence and boast. No one will stand in God's presence on the last day and say, look at my spiritual resume. Looks really sharp. Man, I went to church a lot. Man, I spent lots of money on ministry and kingdom projects. Man, I was really kind to my neighbors. I avoided all the big, bad, ugly, deadly sins. Look at me. Nobody does that. Your salvation is by God's sovereign choice, not by your own action or thinking or planning, even ultimately by your own deciding, though we must decide. There is human responsibility with how we respond to the offer of the gospel. So we don't stand in God's presence and say, look at my spiritual resume. No, we will only say in humble gratitude, Lord, why me? Why have you chosen me? And the second way that this is about God is what we see in verse 6. It's that phrase, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Somehow, God's glory, that is the fullness of His character and the beauty and majesty of who He is, somehow His glory shines most brightly in His grace. The grace of God, the unmerited blessing, His sovereign choice of His people by His own will 
spotlights the beauty of His grace. And that grace shines the light onto the glory of God. So God intends, through the salvation of sinners, to get glory, to be seen as glorious. And the way that He is seen as glorious chiefly is by the riches of His grace that He's poured out on us. Praise God, you have been chosen. Benefit number two, you have been redeemed. You have been redeemed. Now, if the first blessing of salvation that Paul uh, gave for us looks all the way back before the beginning of time into eternity past, into the eternal mind and decrees of God and His choosing and His predestining, His foreordaining, this one looks back into events in history. To say that we've been redeemed, he says not only have we been redeemed, we've been redeemed through His blood. We have redemption through His blood. So the gratitude that we give to God now focuses on these events in history. One commentator says this, those who praise God for His glorious grace, freely given in Christ, can rejoice in a deliverance from their trespasses through His sacrificial death on the cross. Redemption is the release of slaves from bondage. That's the picture that it conjures up. It's, it's liberation. It's deliverance. When God redeemed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, He was setting them free. And we were enslaved to sin and destined for God's wrath. And Jesus' death on the cross removed the barrier of sin and as if by force shook us out of its clutches and released us from sin's power. He redeemed us. A closely related blessing is the forgiveness of sins. You see that very next phrase. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. The clearing of our debt. In order for our relationship with God to be restored, this debt had to be forgiven. And Jesus Christ purchased that forgiveness with His blood. That's how we receive redemption and forgiveness. It's through the death of Jesus Christ in our place. Notice, it is, while it is right to speak of our forgiveness and deliverance as a past event, as I'm doing here, saying you have been redeemed, that's not actually how Paul words it. Paul, in verse 7, actually says this, we have redemption through His blood. We have redemption through His blood. It's not just something that happened to us or something we'll have in the future. It's something that we have and enjoy right now. We have these benefits right now through the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. These phrases, the riches of His grace and lavishing upon us are the language of extravagance and wealth. It pictures a God who is overflowing with treasures of kindness and love, who generously, abundantly pours out these riches upon those whom He has chosen. God has poured out His grace in forgiveness and redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. How is this good news for you? The worst thing about you 
cannot harden God's heart toward you. The worst thing about you cannot harden God's heart toward you. Your worst day, your most shameful sin will not interrupt in the slightest the steady flow of God's forgiveness and favor into your life. He is for you always and forever, no matter what. That's what it means that we've been redeemed and forgiven through his blood. Praise God. How's it about God? It's clear to see how it's good news for us that we've been saved, delivered from slavery to sin, and, and that we've been forgiven all of our sins and given a relationship with him. How's it about God? Well, God is the one who made the plan to redeem enslaved sinners. God is the one who, in Christ, took decisive action in history to provide for our redemption and forgiveness. Your freedom from sin's penalty and power and your relationship with God would simply not be possible without God's initiating love and works of grace in time and space. Because he has done so, your salvation is not merely a possibility, it is a settled reality. So how is this about God? Man, it's all him. It's all his work from start to finish. He gets the glory. He gets the credit. Praise God, you have been redeemed. The third benefit we see is that you have been endowed. I searched for a verb here to fit my pattern. You have been endowed. That means that you have been given an inheritance. Look at verse 11. In Him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. An endowment is an inheritance that is passed on to a family member in the next generation. It's what the the nearest blood relative, if you will, is in line to receive when his benefactor passes away. So to say you've been given an inheritance is to say that in Christ you have become the heirs of his fortune. Jesus, the Son of God, has his fortune, his riches, and you're in line to receive them as his heirs. Paul calls us joint heirs with Christ in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. He's not speaking financially, of course, as though we're necessarily going to become rich uh, in, in terms of, of money and possessions, but of the position and privileges and the acceptance that will be yours for eternity in Jesus Christ. Psalm 16, 11 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the kind of inheritance we have. It's an eternity in God's presence with joy forever. It's the inheritance that Peter speaks of in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's the final full salvation that we'll receive when Christ returns. It's the praise and glory and honor in which we will share in his eternal kingdom. Now, Paul does an interesting thing here. Uh, he differentiates between Jewish Christians in verses 11 and 12 and Gentile Christians in verses 13 and 14. You might notice a kind of a, a shift in, in pronouns. He says, in him we have obtained, and he's been saying we, right, uh, through, through this 
this passage. But look, he says, we have obtained an inheritance. And then he says in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 13, he turns, and him you also, when you heard the word of truth, were sealed. And then he returns to the plural pronoun, our. We, uh, he's the guarantee of our inheritance. So it, it seems that he begins to speak here of a distinction between Jew and Gentile. So when he says we have obtained an inheritance in verse 11, he's actually speaking of Jewish Christians, the, the Jewish people who were the first ones to trust in Jesus as, their, as the Messiah, uh, are those he's speaking to here, who were the first to hope in Christ. And so he's actually introducing the theme here of Jew and Gentile unity, which he'll unpack later in this letter, especially in chapter 2, um, by first distinguishing them in terms of the unfolding salvation history, right? Jew first and then the Gentile, and then by dramatically reuniting them under the phrase, our inheritance in verse 14. It's a little bit complex what, what he does there. But even though he's technically speaking then of Jewish believers in verses 11 and 12, when he says, we have obtained an inheritance, it is nevertheless right to say that this inheritance is among the spiritual blessings that you and I have received in Christ because of how he brings the two together in verse 14. So in verse 14, when he speaks of our inheritance, he is now speaking of Jewish and Gentile Christians, those who have trusted in Christ for their salvation whether you're Jew or Gentile, this is our inheritance. So you have received an inheritance. How is this good news for you? Your life story has an unimaginably happy ending. Sometimes that's just good to be reminded of. Every story doesn't have a happy ending, does it? And sometimes in the midst of the brokenness and the hardship and the pain of life, it's hard to even think that my story is going to unfold well. How is this all going to turn out? I can only imagine catastrophe is somehow, the, sometimes the way that we uh, see our own lives and our own stories as they unfold. But the inheritance that is yours, that is being kept for you in heaven, is a reminder and assurance that your story has an unimaginably happy ending. No matter what sorrows and hardships you are saddled with in this fallen world, your inheritance is on the horizon. And it is filled with joy in Christ's presence that you can scarcely imagine right now. It's good news. How is it about God? Namely, He's the inheritance. Your inheritance is God Himself. The kingdom of God will be filled with good and beautiful things and will be entirely absent of tears and suffering. But make no mistake, the chief glory of the eternal kingdom is not the absence of pain, but the presence of Jesus Christ. We'll be with him. We'll see him face to face. We'll be made like him, we're told. Focus your heart, friends, on the wonder of being in God's presence rather than in the secondary blessings and joys that surely await. It's not wrong to wonder and imagine to think about the good things we'll experience in heaven, being reunited with loved ones who have gone there before us and meeting the great saints of, of the, the Bible and, and in history and, 
and experiencing the, the absence of pain and, and suffering. But when you think about the inheritance that's to come, focus your heart on Jesus Christ as your inheritance. God, it, the inheritance we have is about God because He is the inheritance. Praise God, you have been endowed. You have been given an inheritance. And the fourth and final benefit of salvation we see in these verses that we'll unpack today. You have been sealed. You've been sealed. Look at verse 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. To say that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit is to say that you were given the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God as a down payment, as a guarantee of the inheritance that's to come. You've obtained an inheritance. You have this inheritance coming, but it's not all the way here yet, right? There's a future fulfillment, a future consummation of this inheritance. And until the time that it comes, the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives is God's assurance to us that He will not go back on His Word, that He will surely provide the inheritance that He's promised us. He calls the Spirit the promised Holy Spirit. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And that reminds us that Jesus promised His disciples that He would send Him. Back in John 15, verse 26, he said, When the Helper comes, he will guide you into all truth and, <clears throat> and all these various ministries of the Holy Spirit. He promised he would come, and he's kept his word. Now the Spirit indwells believers, guiding, teaching, convicting, equipping, and his presence proves the security of the reward. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We haven't acquired full possession of it yet, but don't worry. You have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that God will keep His Word and the inheritance is secure. How's this good news for you? It's the ground of your confidence. The fact that you're sealed in the Holy Spirit is the very reason that we can have confidence before God that we belong to Him, that we are not misfits in His family or in His kingdom, that we're not on shaky ground when we pray to Him and ask for His blessing and, and help. We're His. We've been sealed with His Spirit. We've been given this guarantee. Romans 8.15 says that we, we cry out to God as our Father because of the spirit of adoption. The Holy Spirit has come to live in our hearts and it's that reality that gives us the, the awareness and the relationship with God as our Father. <clears throat> Another way that it's good news is that we are locked in a fierce battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. There are relentless spiritual forces at work 
to tear your attention and affection away from Jesus Christ and to entangle your life with other lesser pursuits. That is a constant, relentless battle that is going on. Whether you're aware of it or not, Satan is at work against you, your own flesh is at work against you, and the systems of this world are at work against you. His guarantee, that is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, is what gives you confidence that you will remain in the faith. It's not easy to stay a Christian. There are so many things working against us. Strong spiritual forces that are attacking us and opposed to us. If it were up to us, if it were our own strength or power or, or, or discipline that our security in Christ depended on, none of us would have any hope. None of us would have, as John Piper says, even the confidence that I'm going to wake up tomorrow as a Christian. It could go away just like that. Listen to, to what, what Piper says. He says, Christians should have a steel-strong confidence that they will remain Christians until they die. But it is not because of our strength, our willpower, our solid determinedness to believe in Christ. Rather, it is because God himself has sealed us with his spirit. The only way a Christian can wake up without faith is if God withdraws the down payment of, of his Holy Spirit. And this is... He will never do. The sealing of the Holy Spirit in your life is good news because this is why you know you will remain in the faith. We remain in the faith because He is at work in us. How is it about God? It's the Spirit's work in your heart that actually keeps you from falling away and abandoning Christ altogether. Paul enumerates all those things in Romans chapter 8 that come against Christians and, and would be natural temptations to abandon the faith. He lists all these things, nakedness and peril and sword and, and dungeons and suffering and all these things, right, that, that come against us. But he says, none of these things can possibly separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Is it because we're so strong? Is it because we're bound to just hang in there and by the skin of our teeth and our sheer grit hang on? No, it's because the Spirit of God is at work within you to keep you and to preserve you for Himself. It's about God because it's God's work by His Spirit that keeps us in Him. Praise God you have been sealed. You've been chosen. You've been redeemed. You've been endowed. You've been sealed. All of these glorious blessings and benefits of salvation come to us through Jesus Christ. You see, we are the recipients of the staggering spiritual blessings of God and salvation. But the ultimate subject of that salvation is not you. And it's not me. It's God. God's plan of redemption that He revealed in His Word and accomplished through Jesus Christ includes his purposes to bestow blessings of grace upon his saints. But the primary purpose of those riches of grace is the highlighting of God's glory. In fact, notice one more thing about this passage. Even the, the Trinitarian shape of salvation is presented here by Paul. 
in each of these aspects of salvation, we see each person of the triune God at work. Your salvation has been planned and predestined by the Father who chose you to be His child. Your redemption and forgiveness were purchased by Jesus Christ, the Son, by His death on the cross. Your inheritance is guaranteed and your future is secured by the Holy Spirit when you believed the gospel message. Who's the star of this story? Who gets all the credit for the rich blessings enjoyed by the saints in his salvation? May our lives be an ever-increasing offering of praise to the great God who has so richly blessed us in Christ and made us his own children to the praise of the glory of his grace. Let's pray.